This is an ABC News special report on the Gulf War. Reporting from New York, Peter Jennings. Every indication tonight in Washington and in the Persian Gulf is that the land war against Iraq and occupied Kuwait has begun. Welcome to Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm, the ground war. Uh, someone's going to win on this battlefield, and it's going to be the Americans. On the 24th of February, 1991, the long-awaited ground war began. It was called Operation Desert Sword, and then later changed to Operation Desert Saber. Thirty years later, I can still remember it like it was yesterday. I was back at my duty station over at the Saudi Arabian Air Academy, and we were watching an interview on CNN there in the cafeteria, and there was a Russian general. I don't know why they felt the need to get the opinion of a Russian general, but they did. Maybe because all the tanks the Iraqis had were made in Russia, and we were about to prove just how worthless they were. And the Russian general said, well, if the ground war has started, now the war is just beginning. And I said out loud, no, now the war is ending. When I did the episode last year in 2020 called Useful Idiots, Saddam Hussein had calculated into his battle plan that if he could survive the initial air attack, which was standard U.S. military doctrine, and get to the ground war, he could inflict so many casualties on the Americans that the Americans would sue for peace. It wasn't just Saddam Hussein who thought that. That belief was bolstered by many of the useful idiots in America, Peter Jennings among them, all of the members of the American media. Again, it's 1991. There is no Fox News. There is no Newsmax. There is no social media. There was simply no way to push back on this belief that the Americans could not hold their own in a desert war against the so-called elite Republican Guard who were never elite and against the fourth largest army in the world reputed to be the best fighters in desert warfare. None of that was true. And the reason I knew it was the beginning of the end was because three years before Operation Desert Storm and Operation Desert Saber, the start of the ground war, three Februaries before I found myself at the National Training Center at Fort Irwin, California. You have to imagine, if you're going to do desert war games, the good news is America has plenty of desert in Southern California and elsewhere. But the National Training Center was something in addition to war games and maneuvers. It was literally the biggest, just imagine the greatest, most exciting video game slash paintball slash survival retreat that you can imagine. Every bit of the American military, that concert of different branches, the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marines could come out to this area in Death Valley and prep for a potential desert war that nobody expected to happen. It was simply the only place where you could get all of these pieces on the same battlefield, although it was simulated. That was really the only place in America where you could do that. 
At Fort Irwin, there was actually a contingent of American soldiers who spent their entire time in the Army dressed up as Russian soldiers. They drove Russian vehicles. They carried Russian weapons. They had Russian ranks. The thought was the big showdown was still going to be in Western Europe between the NATO countries led by the United States and England and the Warsaw Pact, the Russians and all of the countries that they had subjugated under communism. And the desert was just a very convenient place to practice all of this. I remember marveling at the fact we had someone attached to our company, our platoon, 2nd Platoon, Alpha Company, 4th Battalion, 21st Infantry. He was what was called an FO, a forward observer. I remember marveling at this, you know, 20-year-old kid from Southern California who's on a radio that has no wires plugged into anything, communicating with people flying overhead at 700 knots, at communicating with the Air Force A-10 pilots, bringing in fire on all of these simulated tanks. It really was like a gigantic paintball game. All of our weapons had these little laser things on them. The, the anti-tank rockets had lasers on them, and when you hit a tank, it would have like this siren, not siren, like the little siren on top that would flash to let you know that it had been knocked out. Now, I was in a light infantry company, so we really were not designed to take on armor. Our job was instead, we, we couldn't destroy tanks. We could, however, destroy the bridges that the fuel trucks needed to get across to fuel the tanks because a tank that can't go anywhere is a tank that's going to get turned into cat litter by a Navy F-18. It was one of the most intense, realistic types of training that I had ever experienced, and I was very, very glad to have experienced that at the National Training Center. Uh, just a funny aside, in those days, the Secretary of Defense was a guy named Casper Weinberger. I was flying from the garrison area back out to the training area on a Black Hawk helicopter. It was myself, a couple other guys, and a civilian in a green flight suit. He had a piece of masking tape over his right chest, and on it was just written, cap. And so he's yelling over the rotor blast at me while we're flying, hey, son, where are you from? I'm like, I'm from San Antonio, Texas. He goes, I'm Casper Weinberger. I'm the Secretary of Defense. I didn't believe that's who it was. He was wearing a helmet, so I couldn't tell. And so I start making all these off-color jokes. Yes, I'm the love child of Ronald Reagan and Barbara Stanwyck. Just all these, you know, rimshot jokes. And sure enough, we get to where we're going, and it happens to be the Secretary of Defense, Casper Weinberg. Well, last time I told you why I was so confident that this ground war would be the end of Operation Desert Storm. And it came down to those three letters, NTC, November Tango Charlie, National Training Center, and my being up close to what I believe to be the greatest weapon system in the history of warfare, specifically the General Dynamics M1 Abrams main battle tank. You have to imagine something that is 30 feet long, weighs 60 tons, but can travel at 45 miles per hour in any weather, day or night, and hit targets while it's moving. This was the American doctrine. Desert Storm was a bridge that connected the military as it had been after Vietnam to the military that it was going 
to be. In the final episode, I'm going to talk about this in great detail, what the long-lasting effects of Desert Storm were. But after Vietnam, the American military realized that it had to improve its equipment, it had to improve its strategy, it had to improve its tactics, but most of all, of paramount importance, it had to improve the quality of people that were using that equipment and responsible for carrying out the tactical and the strategic plan. The ground war launched on the 24th of February in 1991 was immense. It was absolutely massive. We're talking about two corps. The 18th Airborne Corps features units that you've heard of, the 101st Airborne Division, the 82nd Airborne Division, and the 24th Mechanized Infantry Division. Those three units could probably beat any country on earth in 1991 by themselves. And they were joined by another corps, the 1st Infantry Division, plus all the coalition partners. We had agreed that we would let the Arabs take back Kuwait City, you know, political stuff. And so you had this huge left hook spearheaded by the armor. Having been up close to the M1 Abrams main battle tank, I knew there was nothing on earth that could stop it. I don't care how many tanks the Iraqis had. I don't care how many years they had fought an equally inept army. The Iranians we did not lose one single M1 Abrams main battle tank in that ground offensive, which, oh, by the way, despite six months of the media and Democrat politicians and college professors and sissy little student protesters telling us no blood for oil, 30,000 casualties, we're going to be there forever, the ground war is going to last 100 hours and do you remember when you were in school and the varsity played the JV? This was 10 times worse. It was never a contest. It was never going to be 30,000 casualties. It was never going to take a month. It was never going to take six months. I was surprised that it took 100 hours. In retrospect, had we simply launched the ground war first, that war would have been over. The entire thing would have been over in 100 hours. By February 24th, 1991, Americans owned the air, they owned the day, they owned the night, and they were about to own the battlefield on the ground. Now, one of the reasons that all these so-called experts thought there were going to be 30,000 casualties is because they thought we were just going to attack front-on, frontal assault to where the Iraqis had spent six months digging in. That was never the plan. The plan was always to go around, to use mobility and speed to hit these guys on the end, to hit these guys on the flank. The 101st Airborne Division moves 2,000 soldiers by helicopter out into the middle of the desert behind enemy lines to, apt to operate what was called Forward Operating Base Cobra. The guys that I was attached to, I was on that security detail for the Saudi Air Academy, they were fascinated by this. They did not think helicopters could move that much material and manpower into the middle of the desert and basically volunteer to be surrounded on the battlefield by the bad guys. That is exactly what the 101st Airborne Division did, and they did it beautifully. Now, back to the M1 Abrams main battle tank. I'm just going to call it the M1 from now on. It's confusing because there's also a rifle called the M1, but I'm talking about the tank. 
the M1 tank is a, it's a product of that post-Vietnam War mentality. Granted, tanks were not terribly effective in a jungle environment. I've been to Panama. I don't care how big your tank is. It's not going to make it through the triple canopy of Panama. But if there was ever an environment that was perfectly suited for tank warfare and the M1 Abrams tank, it is the desert. You can see for miles in the desert. And the M1 Abrams tank continued that American military doctrine of we can see you, but you can't see us. We can shoot you, but you can't reach us. And it wasn't just the tank. Our airplanes were overhead, dropping precision-guided munitions on the Iraqi armor. Our artillery was better than it had ever been. American artillery has always been the best, but it was so good in 1991. I went to basic training at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, which is the home of American artillery. And I had guys that were going into what was called the MLRS program, the Multi-Launch Rocket System. These were 12 rockets that got shot out, and they had all of these submunitions that blanketed an entire grid square, you know, a square kilometer, and just destroyed everything that was in it. The Iraqis spent six months digging into the border between Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Saudi Arabia. All they were doing was digging their own graves. The tanks and the Bradley fighting vehicles Everything was better. The lessons after Vietnam that said we have to have better equipment, we have to have better tactics, but most of all, we have to have better people. I've got to tell you, that attitude that a bunch of volunteer teenagers couldn't beat the Iraqis was also shared by a lot of people within our own military, but especially by the Saudi pilots that I was watching that news coverage with when the ground war started. In the next episode, I'm going to talk to you about my ability to fly up to some of the areas where the battle, battle was still going on at the very end when 7th Corps finally got moving and what we saw. But as this all began on the 24th of February, I thought, this is why we're here. They're finally going to see, they meaning all the skeptics, going all the way back to San Antonio College, where I wrote that first letter to the editor in September of 1990, responding to my now friend, Professor Dr. Aslan Kali, that he was wrong to suggest that we were going to lose that war. I explained this was why, that we simply could not be stopped in the desert because of the M1 Abrams tank. If you have a moment, I highly encourage you. It's all out there. You can Google it. Go look at the, there's been a lot of modifications to the tank. They don't make them anymore because we have all the tanks we need, and we simply don't fight big protracted tank battles anymore. But this was an example of the perfect time, the perfect place, the perfect equipment, the perfect strategy, but most of all, the perfect people behind the controls. There are places where you can see a virtual tour inside the tank and just take a look at it. It is, it is a fascinating piece of military equipment. And like I said, it is, in my opinion, the greatest military weapon ever designed. We can argue and debate that all day. But when I saw the M1 Abrams up close at the National Training Center, as I said last week, I thought if I could just have one of these 
I could take over any third world country in Central America, in South America, in Africa, in Asia, anywhere. And we had hundreds and hundreds of them in the Saudi and Iraqi and Kuwaiti desert backed up by Navy assets, Air Force assets, and of course, you know, all of the, the very, very new GPS and satellite technology that was finally getting applied collectively onto the battlefield. Despite six months of all of these dire predictions, the war in the, in the, the groundwork phase of the war is going to last 100 hours. In the next episode, I'm going to talk to you about what it was like to, I guess I'd go up and see the battlefield. A lot of very bad things are going to happen at the end of Desert Storm. Uh, very unfortunate things are going to happen at the end of the war. And so with about two episodes left, on the next episode, I'm going to talk about the war ending, do an episode about what it was like to come home, and then one final episode. So we have three episodes left where I'm going to talk about really what it all meant. It's, it's just really such a great, great example of just history and time and talent coming together at exactly the right moment for the Americans in the coalition, not so much for the Iraqis. Next week, I'm going to talk about meeting some of the POWs and what that was like. So next week, we're really going to, going to take it down to the ground level, uh, seeing the highway of death, seeing what people are capable of, of doing and what a modern battlefield really looks like. And if you're on the receiving end of this, and I've got to tell you, the Iraqi soldiers, they weren't elite, they weren't very good, but they didn't really want to be there either. There was never any real animosity on our part, the American soldiers, towards the everyday, you know, infantry or frontline Iraqi soldier. Our issue was with Saddam Hussein, and we had far more um, bitterness towards our Saudi hosts than we ever had towards the Iraqis. And so we'll explore a little more about that next time on the podcast. Uh, like I said, I can remember like it was yesterday watching, it wasn't ABC News that we led off with, it was CNN, which was always on in the cafeteria over at the Saudi airbase, and that, and that Russian general saying, now the war is about to get started, and all these skeptical Saudi pilots saying, yeah, now we'll see what these teenagers do when they're fighting the Iraqis. And I was telling every single one that I could, could talk to, and like I said, they all spoke English for whatever reason in the Saudi Air Force. I said, this is it. It's almost over. It's going to be time to go home. It was just one of those moments of, you know, the good guys are going to win. Uh, all the all the dire predictions are not going to come true. And yes, a little bit of selfishness that I was going to get to go back home and remind people, I told you so. But the number one reason I had that confidence was, again, when you stand next to that M1 Abrams tank, that 60-ton behemoth that is this combination of just Massive size, but also tremendous, at the time, technological advancements. I knew that we were going to win that war, that we were going to win it quickly. To, you know, it's easy to look back 30 years later and, and quarterback this thing. But um, I, I think we could have won that war in two weeks. 
to be perfectly honest. But we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that in the wrap-up. For the time being, I encourage you, if you have a moment, take a look at the maps. You get a sense of, I got some pictures there in the episode description. You get a sense of the size and scope of this thing. If you're looking at maps, look at the, the, the grid up top so you see how many miles we're talking about. It takes a lot of effort to move 120 American light infantry soldiers from Sacramento to Townsville, Australia. I saw what that required. This is something that is just exponentially larger than that. And oh, by the way, there are people fighting back. The Iraqis do fight back during the ground war, finally, and they get clobbered, as I knew they would. Hey, listen, thank you so much for listening to Thunder and Lightning Operation Desert Storm. My name is Jason Dyes, and until next week, take care. You take my-